I believe the vast majority of people who are crying out for justice, those are people who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's a part of their faithfulness. It's a part of their own integrity. That's Ryan Ramsey. He's a chaplain and pastor who has spent quite a bit of time listening to and caring for those who have experienced spiritual abuse. I've actually heard people say in response to some disclosure of harm, I don't want to hear anymore. I'd rather just not know. I try to have compassion for that because it is such a a painful cognitive experience. At some point, the people who choose to look away or choose not to know become complicit. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. Hello, friends. Welcome to season two of Untangled Faith. It was great to have a little break, but I am so happy to be back. This season, I'm taking you along on a journey that started for me in 2017 and that I'm still walking through in some ways today. In 2017, we left a church because it was too painful to stay. 18 months later, our family came to the realization that something was very wrong at my husband's workplace at the time, Ramsey Solutions. In April of 2019, he resigned, and we both walked away wondering what in the world had just happened. When you leave a place that is very much tied up with your faith, it takes a while to find your footing. Throughout this season, I'll take you along to show you what worked for me and some of my friends. I chose to start this season by introducing you to Ryan Ramsey. No relation to my husband's former CEO, by the way. He's a pastor, chaplain, writer, and husband to KJ. I first met him on Twitter and immediately felt seen encouraged, and pastored by his work. Why am I starting this season by introducing you to a pastor? I'll answer that by telling you a brief story. A year ago, in the middle of being on the receiving end of abusive and harassing actions from Ramsey Solutions, some friends of ours did something brave and reasonable. They reached out to the pastor of their church and asked if he would go with them to talk to Dave Ramsey. The pastor turned them down. He said he wouldn't go with them because he was friends with Dave. Today's episode is my gift, especially to these dear friends, to show them and everyone else who needs to know what it looks like to pastor people who are hurting. Here's my conversation with Ryan Ramsey. I'm thrilled to talk to you. First of all, I I probably share about 99% of the things that you share on Twitter and I have friends that just are so grateful for your words. I would love it if you would just explain a little bit about what you are doing these days. So I am a chaplain in healthcare. Chaplaincy is fairly new to me. I've been in um, going on two years now as a chaplain and prior to that pastoral ministry in some capacity for about a decade. But um, I am a part of a really great and interesting program that, that serves outpatient providers and staff in terms of spiritual care. So it's really unique in that I'm rounding in outpatient clinics like primary care settings or a specialty clinic, and I'm entirely staff-facing support. Provide spiritual care to 
doctors, nurses, medical assistants, you know, patient representatives. And it's, it's really beautiful and rewarding. It's, it's, it's sort of a diverse experience in that the folks that we serve are not, obviously we're not making assumptions about background, religious or not, but we get all kinds of incredible opportunities to be present with people. And, and I would say for me to, to continue pastoring people, which is what I love. There's a very different feel to pastoring when you look at that sort of field. You're sitting with people that are experiencing trauma, especially recently. You know, that that heaviness trickles out from the inpatient hospital, you know, those COVID floors, the ICUs, all the way out across the systems and into outpatient. So it's interesting to see how COVID has affected those outpatient settings and how it's affected the staff there in, in sometimes more secondhand ways, but very real. Did you think I'm going to be a pastor to medical professionals? How did you find yourself working as a chaplain in a medical environment? Yeah, KJ and I would probably say by accident. It's one of those things. In seminary, I I did an MDiv, a Master of Divinity in seminary, and I decided to do a concentration in pastoral care and counseling. Part of that concentration included uh, some training in clinical pastoral education or CPE. Those of you familiar with chaplaincy know what that means. And I did a unit of that training in seminary, sort of reluctantly, like, this doesn't really mean much to me, but it's probably valuable. Not sure I'll ever use it, but I'll do it anyway. And, you know, here I am seven years later, and it turns out that training came in really handy as I transitioned, at least for a while, out of pastoral ministry, formerly in a church, to chaplaincy. That's how I landed in chaplaincy today, and it's been really, it's been really sweet, honestly. So I was skimming through your Twitter timeline. And one thing I made a note of was that you said something about how your experience as a chaplain was helping form your idea of the vocation of pastor. Can you speak more about that? How has that looked for you? You will often hear among chaplains, regardless of, of faith background, that chaplaincy at its core, at its heart, is the ministry of presence. So it's, it's fundamentally and foundationally being present with people who are often suffering. In that sense, I, I would say that a ministry of presence is foundational to pastoring in any setting. Pastoring is about presence. Pastoring is about being the kind of person and presence uh, that is healing to whoever you're with. I think chaplaincy has really enabled me to continue to develop as a pastor and to develop presence. I think of those as, as shepherding. You know, shepherding is offering my presence in a way, hopefully, that is healing to whoever I'm with. It's just fascinating to me that you're seeing the value of presence as being integral to being a pastor. How do you see that fitting into the current model of CEO, leader, pastor in churches? There's a lot of us out there trained as pastors, experienced in pastoral ministry who are to use the trendy word, deconstructing the vocation. Sure. And that's sort of how I would describe my own experience. Yeah, it's been a, at times, very painful process of realizing what many of us swallowed when we hear about pastoring, meaning being this kind of leader with these kinds of skills versus being a certain type of person who's formed inwardly by Jesus and offers his or her presence to those they serve. And those are fundamentally different paradigms I'm learning. I feel like part of my own journey is, is deconstructing and really, I would say, unsubscribing from one particular model of pastoral leadership. And I would say embracing a new 
I think the original model that Jesus gives us for what a shepherd is and who a shepherd is supposed to be uh, with others. Like, what do you see as sort of a biblical model? When you look at scripture, what does it mean to be a pastor? I think pastoring is at its heart embodying uh, the vocation of shepherd. We can obviously look lots of places in scripture uh, to see that, you know, depending on who you ask, you might hear someone say, well, sure, shepherding is part of it, but isn't it also teaching, preaching, leading, planting churches, all of those things too. And I would say, yes, maybe, but at its heart, in terms of the substance and character and personhood, a pastor is a shepherd. And we can look to texts in the New Testament where the uh, epistles and, you know, apostles teach about that. But I think ultimately we go to the life and person of Jesus as the great shepherd and look at his life, look at how he uh, embodied the vocation himself with us and with people. I completely take my cues about pastoring from the way Jesus models it for us. I know that both of you care very deeply about people that have been hurt in their faith communities. I know from your story, you've experienced it on on one side of, of that. I love how you have taken your experience and you seem to be leaning into it in a way that says, how can I help others? And so as someone who has worked as a minister and who has sat down with people that have been very hurt and have experienced it yourself. What do you say to the pastor that is really wary about someone coming into their congregation, talking about the hurt they've experienced prior? I've seen, you know, pastors say, you know, the person that comes into your church complaining about their old church is going to leave complaining about you. I asked this question to Mary DeMuth in a previous episode, but I wanted to ask Ryan as well. And I was just wondering, what would you say to those leaders? Yeah, great question. Important question. My first impulse would be to tell that pastor or that leader to be wary of that posture about the family who who may visit your church with painful prior experience and to be very wary of assumptions you may be making along those lines to even think about a person or a family like that in ways that sound like baggage, or now they're a threat to you or your congregation. You know, are you going to be the next pastor who's kicked out or falsely accused? There's these narratives, right? I think that posture is deeply problematic and in complete opposition to how I would encourage someone to navigate that person or family. I, I think it's the opposite. I think our approach and posture as pastors to a person or family coming who's been wounded, who's been battered, who's been hurt, has some kind of painful background from a faith setting is to let them teach you, to let their pain be a means of your pastoral development and growth. To assume not that these people are church hoppers or impulsive consumers or dramatic histrionics. Now they just happen to show up at your doors, but instead to assume that Jesus actually led them there. Jesus actually brought them out from that painful experience. And now he's shepherding them and and you have an opportunity to partner with Jesus and welcome that person or family, not just welcome them, but hold their story and learn from them. 
So who have been your pastor mentors that you would look to, or that you still are looking to either historical figures or more contemporary ones? Well, in terms of, you know, writers, probably won't surprise you, but Eugene Peterson is someone who has really shaped not just me, but both both myself and KJ, how we think about our vocations, how we think about ministry, how we think about shepherding and pastoring. I would encourage anyone who has come out of or who is grappling with pain in church, who's been abused or wounded uh, by faith leaders, to read everything you can get your hands on by Eugene Peterson, because turns out he, and not just him and others, but, but Eugene is one of those voices who's been speaking out on this for decades. He was blowing the whistle in the mid 80s about CEO leadership in churches. He was always a prophetic witness. His life, his his vocation, uh, his his long obedience uh, as a pastor himself bears profound witness to what faithfulness looks like and just the stories of people that have been impacted or that were impacted by his ministry and his presence are incredible. Eugene is a massive influence for myself and and KJ, and we're picking up his his words all the time. And then there are others, pastors that remain dear to me and to us. We helped plant a church in Tennessee back in 2009, 2010, the founding pastor there who's since retired remains a dear friend. And he is one of those people who embodies the life and presence of a shepherd. I, I saw the way he pastored people. I saw the way he shepherded me and my family and and he's remained uh, a shepherd to us over the years, even as we've navigated some really tough waters in ministry and transitioning and resignations. There are others who I've met in recent years, men and women, who have just played that role of of shepherd, Christ-like presence to us who embody humility and faithfulness, who uh, live and serve at the margins. And that's so key and critical to discerning whether someone is a pastor or shepherd or leader that can be trusted is, is their, their eagerness and willingness to serve at the margins. Those prophetic voices are so, so important. And I, you just want to sit with those people, people that have been through it and have seen it. And there's just something really, really beautiful about that. So what, which book should I start with, with Eugene? That's tough. I mean, you know, uh, when Collier recently released his authorized biography, you could you could start there. I, I don't think there's a wrong answer. But one of my favorite, personally, one of my favorite books of Eugene's is um, Under the Unpredictable Plant, which is uh, again a lot about pastoral vocation. The things we're talking about here through the lens of Jonah's Jonah's story and experience. You have had lots of conversations recently with people that have gone through really painful things. You had talked about how you tell people that have experienced these hurtful things that you would not tell them to move on. You would tell them to move in. That is something I would love to talk about because I often hear advice to people that are hurting is move on. So Mm -hmm. what's the difference between moving on and moving in? It reminds me, there's a quote by a man named Richard Rohr, and he says something to the effect of pain that is not transmuted will be transmitted outward to others. There's this idea that for those of us who have experienced profound hurt uh, coming from a faith setting, the healing process is painful itself. It's very slow. But part of that healing process is allowing ourselves to do that inner work to really grapple 
grapple with the anger, grapple with the grief, grapple with the major theological questions that come out of that pain. And that is such a critical part of healing from abuse. And so the sentiment from wherever, inside the church or or not, to move on is, I think, naive, but also just misguided. Because if we if we work really hard to try and move on from something as painful as as church related harm, inevitably it's going to just continue to spill out and come out sideways because we're not healing. We're just trying to move past it. That's where I would start. But also I would say the rewards of doing the hard inner work. And it's not just solitary work. It's it's with a counselor. It's with friends. It's with a, a trusted pastor, spiritual director. You know, this is communal work. The rewards for doing that inner work uh, in order to heal are profound in the sense that what often happens uh, when we stay with our pain, KJ has a lot of thoughts about this, as you know, when we stay with our pain, we often find that our voice is revived in some way. And a lot of times new expressions of vocation come out of that sort of lingering with, with the pain in order to heal. There's a difference, right? There's a difference with lingering or staying with our pain in order to heal versus lingering or staying with our pain in order to remain or become bitter. That often is is normal in, in the process. If you're in that spot, that's okay. It takes it takes a community again to walk with you patiently as you're navigating bitterness. I've been there and it's not like you just move on suddenly from bitterness and never experience again, right? It will, it will always pop back up and it's just normal. It's sort of this one step back, two steps Mm -hmm. back, one step forward journey for healing. And and it's all part of it. There's just no way, there's no way to heal without uh, grappling with and entering into our own pain in community. And the idea of moving on is pretty hurtful and offensive to those of us who are facing it. I feel like the voices that are often saying move on, it feels like a threat to them in some way. And that's unfortunate. The people that are the most loudly expressing their pain often are doing that because they feel like nobody's listened to them. They're not going to be able to move on very easily until someone sits down and actually hears them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, again, I think instead of assuming that someone who is very vocal, perhaps public about their story the wrongs that they faced, instead of assuming that they're just mouthing off in bitterness, like you said, it's probably much more accurate to say they're crying out because of the amount of times they've been dismissed, because of the amount of times someone has rolled their eyes or tried to make excuses for the harm that was done to them. There's almost always a background of repeated dismissal, being silenced, being ignored, being ghosted that forces so many people to say, who will hear me? Who will listen to my story? Who will advocate for me? I believe the vast majority of people who are crying out for justice, who want to be heard, who want those are people who are working out their salvation with fear and trembling. It's a it's a part of their faithfulness. It's a part of their own integrity being expressed when they cry out. It's actually I, I would say courageous because it's vulnerable. And those are the same people who've been ignored so much before. What have you learned from people that have gone through spiritual abuse? I think I've heard you say, read some things that you said about these people have been teachers to you. What have you learned from them? What, and, and what do people misunderstand? Yeah, I would say two related 
observations, not, not just from my own story, but from so many we've come to know over the years who've navigated or walked out of fiercely abusive environments. My anecdotal experience would tell me that the vast majority of those folks are people of deep integrity. And that's a misconception because a lot of the rhetoric out there might be that if you've come out of church hurt, then then you have so much baggage that your own integrity must be compromised. You played a part, right? You're to blame as much as whoever the other side is, all those misconceptions. But the people that we've met and served and shepherded, even in, even in the last two or three years, have consistently been people of immense and profound integrity who have walked away, who are crushed and heartbroken, but whose fundamental desire is to honor Jesus. And now they're asking, what does honoring Jesus look like when I just left a church? And I'm, I'm scared to enter another one. That's a really tough question. But those are questions of integrity. Those are questions from people who are as committed as ever to walking with Jesus. They're just not sure what it looks like in terms of local gathering or church commitment. And it's because of what they faced. So what if you're in a church or, uh, you know, any sort of faith adjacent community, you love it. And somebody says something, a friend of theirs or somebody that they have heard of, it says, I have been hurt by this leader or this place. How would you counsel them to work through those, the, that cognitive dissonance that has to be happening in the brain that says, okay, I, I believe this to be this. And these two things can't be true at the same time. So often those interactions are where we see that almost involuntary responses that reflect bias that will be minimizing to the person who was harmed. If we just want to talk about this in the language of discipleship, one of the opportunities we have in the context of the church is to help people learn that your experience is maybe fundamentally different to the person beside you and to check our responses before we make assumptions about what must be true of another's experience to practice the basic posture of someone is telling me their their experience it's uncomfortable for me to hear this but i'm not going to let my own anxiety or discomfort or assumptions based on my own experience dictate how i respond to them instead i'm simply going to enter into their experience i'm going to hold their story and then let their story inform my experience. That's really hard to do. And I'd be the first to say, like, I've not done well in this in the past myself, where something critical or hard to hear is spoken about someone who I respected. What usually happens is I say something in my own anxiety, because that doesn't compute with my experience. But we would spare one another so much heartache, harm, betrayal, if we could learn to pause and with intention be curious about the other's experience, hear them out, listen to their story deeply, hold it, uh, assuming the best of them, and then let let it inform our own. That's hard work. Yeah, It's really hard work. Yeah. I didn't ask you about this beforehand, but I don't know if you followed any of the writing on betrayal blindness, even being aware of the fact that our brains sometimes want to protect us from acknowledging and truly processing that something is true that might cost us something has been really helpful for me understand and remember that other people's experiences that might threaten my peace 
I need to be willing to hold those. And it's also given me a little bit of empathy for people that have a hard time believing the truth of things that I've experienced. I think I have, I've lived through it. I've, I've been that person that was like, you kind of see it and you're like, nope, I, I can't, I can't afford to see that right now. Totally. I've actually heard people say in response to some disclosure of harm, I don't want to hear anymore. In other words, I can't face that, that reality that you're trying to describe to me. I'd, I'd rather just not know. I try to, I try to have compassion for that because it is such a a painful cognitive experience, but it often leads to so much more, so much more hurt. And at some point, the people who choose to look away or choose not to know become complicit and it, it compromises their own integrity. It's that experience of having the scales removed. And there's this really critical moment where truth is revealed. You know, it's like a window opens and either we follow through and say it's, it completely changes the paradigm of reality and, and explains the system we're in. Or, you know, those those who can't see or, or won't close that window as quickly as possible. Try to forget about it and move on. One of the... <laughs> arguments in in favor of that is loyalty. Ryan's thoughts on loyalty were the first things that Ryan shared online that got my attention. I've gone back to his words on loyalty over and over. This part of our conversation alone is worth the price of admission. People think of loyalty as this really positive thing, but when it is in a faith community, you wrote something, I don't remember when you wrote it, but you wrote something about toxic loyalty and how loyalty doesn't really fit with our understanding as believers of like a sinful nature and how systems and loyalty to systems and people can cross the line and not be healthy. I do remember that. And I think I think originally what prompted a lot of that reflection was what happened. I think this was late 2019, maybe with Bethel church. Yes. I think that's the, and con- I was just wa- was watching that unfold. It prompted a lot of this observation that it's interesting in Christian communities who espouse sin, like individual sin, our original sin nature. And we talk about it all the time, but what happens when loyalty creeps in, in a, in a toxic way is it actually causes us to contradict what we believe about sin. And so we start to treat people and systems and communities as though they're inherently good, mm-hmm. as though they're inherently virtuous. And so any problems that crop up or concerns that get raised get minimized because the system's good, because the leader's good. And that's that's sort of the power of loyalty is it can create this myth about goodness rather than seeing seeing the truth. So should we be loyal to churches, leaders, authors, pastors? Lots of thoughts on that. Um, <laughs> my first response, I think, would be that we need to learn to be loyal to character and let that inform uh, the degree of loyalty we extend to people or to systems. To be loyal to integrity as the bar set before us in community and interpersonally, and to let that inform the degree of loyalty we extend to others. So I can only be as loyal to a person as they are to their own integrity. And Mm -hmm. so if someone is proving to be harmful or untrustworthy, or they're making choices, or they're behaving in ways that are compromising their integrity, and they're doubling down 
and they're not seeking repentance, then in my eyes, that's sort of the end of the road for loyalty. And actually, we can we can still love those people very well without merely remaining loyal to them. There's this thing about loyalty that gets worked out and looks like just choosing to ignore, dismiss, or minimize real character concerns because that's my person. That's my guy. That's my that's my girl. It's, it's a very distorted way to think about how we relate to one another and how we exist in systems, right? Mm-hmm. Loyalty often is very related to our level of investment in persons and in communities where we have very, very deep ties, you know, economically, financially, relationships, and the stakes get really high, right? Yeah. So that gets really tricky when we're dealing with the revelation of abuse or compromises of integrity because our loyalty often gets in the way of of seeking justice and truth. When Nathan resigned from his job, the next team meeting that they had, um, the CEO got up and was really railing about how it's really unfortunate that people don't stay loyal. And that I saw an article that was created out of that audio from that meeting that was made into a blog post. And I read it and I thought, oh my goodness, he's talking about my husband as the rats leaving the ship with no sign of water. And this doesn't sound like a fruit of the spirit. Loyalty isn't a fruit of the spirit. At that moment, it sounded a lot like a requirement from the mob. It's not helping that organization to just be loyal regardless. Exactly. It's this idea of loyalty asks us to give our salute, our unconditional salute to people, to leaders, to systems. Loyalty is this idea mentioned or commented about it before that I'll go down with the ship no matter what. We have to learn that Christian faithfulness and integrity looks like being willing to discern when we need to jump ship because we need fewer sinking ships. Loyalty will prevent us and the systems we exist in from from being formed and changed. Loyalty will prevent repentance in many cases. You know, to nuance, people who are trustworthy, faithful shepherds, faithful friends, faithful leaders, one of the fruits that often comes from being that kind of person is you will find yourself with a community of loyal supporters and partners. There's a sense of camaraderie and partnership and fidelity that you have to one another. And that's very different, right? It's something that happens organically and not demanded by the leader. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and someone who, as a fruit of their character, is surrounded by loyal supporters and partners, that person is always going to be simultaneously open-handed with uh, the relationships he or she is in. So the expectations, hopefully, I have, if I'm surrounded by a community of people who have been loyal to me, I think of so many great friends is I don't expect anyone to give me their salute, but that I'm grateful for their fidelity as a friend and relationship. We have to know the difference between those. I like that, that open-handed thing, Mm -hmm. that sort of relationship will happen so naturally then, and there won't be any shame involved in it. There's no Mm -hmm. shame if somebody asks a question, if they say, I feel uncomfortable with something, this doesn't seem right. I mean, it just seems like a, a healthy relationship. If you were sitting with somebody who had just come out of something really painful how would you pastor them? What would you say to them? These wounds are pretty fresh and, and they're just 
trying to make sense of it all still. I've experienced the beauty of both receiving this kind of pastoring and offering my presence pastorally to people. When we moved back to Colorado a couple of years ago, joined a new church, got to know a new pastor and this very scenario sort of unfolded, right? And we had lunch with him and decided to share our story. We thought it was really important and the timing was right, but we needed to, right? To build trust. It was one of those memorable experiences where uh, this pastor entered into our story deeply. And it was so healing for us to experience him hold our story and to experience him emote. He cried uh, when he heard it and he didn't say a whole lot other than I'm so sorry, but he was present with us. There was no doubt in in our minds or hearts that he was standing in solidarity with us and broke and his heart broke for us when we shared our own story. That's so healing, right? And that's what it looks like. We've had the honor of doing that with a number of families uh, in recent years ourselves. And often what people need is not a list of tips or advice. They, they just need you to hold their story, to hold it and to take it seriously. Not merely to just be believed, but to enter into those experiences with them and emote on their behalf, be moved by their story. Imagine what it was like. That kind of presence is usually what people want and what people need. Practical assistance that might come. Sure, that that may be part of the equation uh, down the road, but especially in the sort of triage phase when the wounds are really fresh, when people are really raw, they just need safe people who are willing to enter in and hold their story and sometimes speak or act on their behalf. So if I'm listening to someone's experience and I'm being moved by it, I'm holding someone's story and I'm I'm facing the injustice of it. There's a question for me that I think is important along with listening about what might Jesus be asking me to do as an advocate? Are there ways that I can advocate for this person or family, speak on their behalf, uh, seek resources for them, do the work to further their healing so that they don't have to alone. There is often an invitation to do something as well as to to listen and hold hold their story. I know that speaking costs things. I know that it makes people feel uncomfortable. I mean, nobody wants to build their life on something that's painful, but I, I just love the redemptive way that God is using painful stories in a way that, you know, that people can move into it and say, how can we make something of this? I've learned that I would rather sit with the people that have gone through really hard things because I could learn so much from them. I am thankful for how you and KJ have and are doing that. I'm super excited about her book. Whenever it comes out, you're doing a great work. I hope it's clear now why I chose Ryan to kick off season two. I love his thoughtful words. I admire his advocacy on behalf of the vulnerable. I especially appreciate his reminder that healthy pastoral leadership always looks like Jesus. I'll wrap this up with an excerpt from a poem by Ryan Ramsey called The Stakes of Our Support. The impartial see the cavalry of well-knowns rushing to console an admired peer and stand in the gap instead. Not as neutral, but as Nathan to David with holy and prophetic courage. They listen as a shepherd or friend for the battered unknowns in the shadows 
and speak accordingly. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you would share it with a friend and leave a review on iTunes. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook as Untangled Faith. For transcripts and show notes, check out untangledfaithpodcast.com. On the next episode of Untangled Faith. But when you build an entire structure that creates, affirms, and monetizes that idolization, you can't say you don't want to be idolized. And I didn't tell Nathan this at the time. I knew that the place that my husband got his paycheck from was going to be in the news. Someday I was going to wake up and I was going to see their name there.